Back at the top of the lookout, the sky had cleared a little. She could see that the firestorm had cut a stripe through the town from the northwest to the southeast, as if a gigantic fire-breathing bulldozer had ploughed through Ash Mountain, leaving nothing in its wake but thick smoke and demon trees. She looked through the telescope again, but her time had run out and she couldn't find another coin. She did a slow 360. There was a wriggly line of red and white lights extending well beyond the town in each direction. When one of the lights exploded, she realised she was looking at the old northern highway, North Road, crammed with evacuees, the closest of whom would surely be dead in their vehicles. The back of the fire was roaring off towards unsuspecting towns in the southeast. What were the names of those villages exactly? Comrie? Brown Creek? To the north, the western side of the main street was on fire. Was that the supermarket? The eastern side of North Road, including the Red Lion and the London Emporium and Gallagher's Bakery, was thus far unscathed. The wide main street, made for the hefty horse traffic between Melbourne and Sydney, had served the town again at last. To the northwest, Ryan's Lane was still obscured by thick smoke, bar the water tank. It was clear now that the only way was if she ran down the eastern side of the hill, which was treeless and circumnavigated the town, finding a route to Dante's via the college playing fields. She'd also be able to check out the convent hall as per the original plan. It was at the foot of the main street beside the oval and looked like it might have escaped the fire. Fran was supposed to meet Vonnie at the convent at four and the oval was the place of last resort if the community siren went off. Please, Bonnie, Bonnie, be at the convent. Please be there. Please be there, she chanted as she raced down the hill and not in the water tank. She mustn't think about the tank. It would have been the heat. It would have been quick. She mustn't think about the tank. Anyway, Bonnie might have had runners on this morning. Would she wear runners with shorts? She was wearing shorts. Fran was almost sure. Fran had last been in the bedroom. When? Last night. And they weren't on the windowsill, were they? She couldn't remember if they were there. There was hardly any water in that tank at Dante's. It could have boiled. Boiled. Shh. She ran faster, changed her thinking. Please not, Bonnie. Please don't be Bonnie. Then stopped and vomited. Because she knew what she was wishing for. That please don't be Bonnie actually meant please be Rosie. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to Helen Fitzgerald about her new book, Ash Mountain. Helen is the best-selling author of 10 adult and young adult thrillers, including The Donor and The Cry, which was long-listed for the Thixton's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year and is now a major drama for ABC and BBC One. Helen worked as a criminal justice social worker for over 15 years. She grew up in Victoria, Australia and now lives in Glasgow. Helen Fitzgerald, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Hello, hello from Glasgow. Thanks for joining us. 
it seems pretty clear that you are a prodigious writer of thrillers. What's the thrill in the thriller for you? Well, actually, I started off trying to write comedy. So I started writing screenplays about 20 years ago. When my husband and I met, we both decided to be writers. And he, very quickly, his career took off in screenwriting. So I was giving it a go, too. And I was writing romantic comedies and comedy scripts and trying to get things made with, uh, you know, sending things off to the BBC and having meetings. And um, and I wrote long a screenplay that very, got very close to getting made. It was about the third full screenplay that I'd had in development and I got fed up with with getting nowhere. I basically failed miserably. But I had written a screenplay which was um, called The West Highland Way and I decided to turn it into a book and I sat down and I started writing this comedy novel and then I came downstairs and said to my husband, oh my God, I've just killed three people and there's a paedophile in it. <laughs> and he said, but Ali, this is comedy, is it not? And I'm like, yeah, but I think it might work. And he's like, no way will that work. So... I don't know whether it was just boredom, actually, because when you're writing a book and you get your characters together and you put a murder in it, it really ups the ante. It really kind of spurs you on to what happens next. So I don't know, it, was just, it just came naturally to me, saying that I had always worked with criminals. You know, I've been in, um, a social, I'm a social worker, but in Scotland, social workers also are in charge of the probation and parole service. So I'd specialised and was uh, supervising people on probation and parole. And I had worked as well in Balini Prison, which we call the Big Hoose over here. Um, and so I'd constantly been meeting people who were telling me their stories of crime. And I was, you know, supervising people and trying to, you know, help them stop, basically, and also keep keep people safe around them. So I think it was pretty natural meeting. And also the comedy element coming together with the thriller element was just a really natural thing in Glasgow and in Australia. I think the humour and with big families. So I'd always come from dark humour. You know, we we sort of, our humour was our currency with our big family at home. And in working somewhere like Balini, where it was pretty dire and depressing, I've never laughed so much in my life. You know, the colleagues were stand-up comedians. You know, I think they got on, they got, they managed the job, and a lot of people in police force say the same thing, you know, they managed the job by humour and sometimes I guess it can be a bit nasty but mostly it was all pretty innocent and just a release and so it came very naturally to me to write thrillers and to write about crime I was always interested in why people did things and that's why I went into that job and into what you know what happened to you that this is this is now what you're doing um that really interested me so it was a combination of of the things that I you know I just had in life I think came together into into thrillers the other thing is it's a bigger market and um, crime writers are fun. So the writers that I'd met who I liked were crime writers. <laughs> and there's a big element for me of what is my work morale going to be like? What's it going to be like being a crime a writer? As a poet or a literary fiction, I don't know any of them who have any friends and you know, because you're on your own kind of thing, you know, and it's a different vibe. Crime writers help each other. We have festivals all year round, it's sociable, uh, we read each other's books, we don't seem to, it's a nice environment. So that was actually a part of it. If I could take you back for a moment, you grew up in the Victorian town of Kilmore, but you now live in Glasgow, and the book is set in this fictional rural town in Victoria called Ash Mountain. How did you go about funneling your experience of growing up in rural Victoria into Ash Mountain, the novel? 
Oh gosh, it was so it was so easy. I've never written about my hometown, and I've done a lot of writing. And it's sort of the publishing industry when I started out didn't want Australian novels, uh, crime novels. Like even my first publisher was Alan and Unwin in Australia, but they wanted the next Denise Miner, a Glaswegian writer. You know, so I wasn't seen as an Australian writer particularly. Um, so uh, I was. I think because of the cry and great writers like Jane Harper and Michael Roberts and all these people coming out and, and being very vis visible, like at the Theakston's crime writing community and their books doing so well, the floodgates opened a bit. It's now, it was, I just felt like no one's going to stop me writing about Australia now. So um, I just went for it. And Gilmore, when I grew up, is, it's a little town north of Melbourne. It's about um, 60 kilometres north of Melbourne. When I grew up there, there was about a thousand people. And... And I, I just the town when I started thinking back at it, it was just felt like a real it had been through so much it felt like a hard knock town and I know a lot of um, rural towns not just in Australia but in Scotland and Italy and everywhere um, have gone through a lot of difficult historical times and my town was no different from that and I was basically just very easily going back to when I was 15 and living there and the sorts of things that were going on and one of the big things for me was the boarding school that was in um, Kilmore at the time, which was just so many boys in that small population, so many teenage boys. And they were horrendous to the girls. I say they, obviously not all of them, but in my head, they were just, you know, terrifying, the boarders. So I really um, just took myself back to feeling 15 and being afraid to go down the street. As I was writing it, actually, I re and researching the town, I felt sorrier and sorrier for the boarders, which I had never expected to, to feel because they'd also been having a very rough time in Kilmore, I think, at that time too. As If you Google it, you will find out, you know. There was the Catholic Church who had a, such a stronghold on the town. Um, there were different groups. There was the Protestant Catholic thing. I think for everyone where they grew up is probably almost always the most vivid. But setting has never, has never been important. To me, I, I never felt it was, and now it's becoming more and more important. And I'm realizing as I write a place that I really know um, that it's it's wonderful to write. So I mean, writing 15 year old, living in Kilmore, uh, going to the Blue Light Disco, um, you know, trying to make your way to school without getting yelled at by the boarders and chased and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it was, yeah, it took me back. Not particularly to pleasant times, I have to say. But as I wrote the book. Uh, the, the fondness and the affection that I have for the town and the people in it became more and more apparent to me because actually there were so many great people and the humour and um, and the sense of community where we did all go to each other's funerals and we felt each other's pain. You know, we I knew about everybody's tragedies, whereas where I live now in a suburb, it's so different from that. You know, I haven't been to anyone's funeral. Well, I think you've made it out of Kilmore. In fact, you're probably about as far away from Kilmore as you can get. Fran is the main character in Ash Mountain, and she's one of a number of really gritty, down-to-earth characters that populate the whole story. Who is Fran, and what are her origins as a character? She's a mishmash of a few people I know who I, who I think are better people than I am. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess I was starting to think my mum and dad, dad died um, about six years ago and I'd gone over for a couple of months and my mum's been very ill and my and 
you get to the point where you've looked after, you've finished the sort of caring of your own children and the caring of your parents comes in. And so I guess that's the where I'm at just now. Although I'm not there, it's my sisters and my brother who are looking after mum. And I was just kind of thinking what would it be like, you know, if I had to move home. So many people do to to care for their relatives. So I had uh, I had that sort of dilemma in and, and what if it was Kilmore? You know, how would I feel? How, would it be the same place? You know, how would I how would I deal with um, moving back there? Um, yeah, so Fran was, um, I, I wanted to make her like women that I know, like my sister who is caring for my mum and my sister-in-law, who's just very, very practical and gets on with it and, you know, okay, there's a job to do. So when Fran gets home and her dad's in a wheelchair and is pretty much housebound, she, she's just a little manic probably, but how can I make his life better? How can I make this work? And she's just absolutely sets her mind to it. And I guess that's how I found most people were. Okay, this really awful thing has happened. What do we do now? And I think that felt particularly Australian. It did feel like my sister in particular. There's something quite unsettling about the atmosphere in Ash Mountain. There's these layers of personal trauma, along with natural disaster, separated by time, both historical and present day. Were you always conscious of creating this kind of tapestry I studied Australian history at Melbourne University and I, uh, when I went to London, I studied at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies. I was just always really interested in Australian history and Australian literature. So I did really feel like I was giving a history of the town. One, one thing being in my original draft, I didn't have any Indigenous characters in it because growing up in Kilmore, there weren't any. I might have been 16 before I even saw someone who was black. I kind of wanted to show how the bushfire is really just one more um, tragedy that the town has gone through. That over history, there's white invasion, followed by, you know, the farmer settlers who have since had such a difficult time, the farmers, um, and the gold rush and all these things that sort of waved through, through the town. There are even things like it was originally Kilmore. It was the first stop that you would stop at on the way to Sydney with your horse and carts it was that right so it had look that's why it had so many pubs it was that sort of town and when the highway came it was still a place that people stopped but when I was growing up even that stopped there was the bypass so it just felt like everything that it had once done every function that it had was kind of you know went nowhere so I was kind of showing the bushfire as, as another it's another pump to the town and once again they have to sort of get up and get going again a lot of the characters, including Fran, seem to be dealing with some sort of traumatic past, but a lot of it is cast with this, uh, I guess, this rather caustic humour, and that humour seems to almost survive even through the final disaster of the fire. Like I was saying with in Barlini, working in Barlini, I think that's why we laughed, because it was traumatic. I remember coming home telling my son's stories all the time about work and saying, wow, this, you know, not giving him details I'm not allowed to give, but, oh, my God, this today. And he would say, you don't sound excited, Mum. You sound upset, you know. But, um, yeah, I think it was a – I find it natural to do that. And it might not it might not be natural to a lot of other people, but to me, like even when there have been deaths in the family and you're in, you're, you're in a hospital afterwards and you're all hugging each other and you're laughing as well, you know. There's always laughter. There's something, you know, you um, – so, I mean, obviously not while the fire is happening, you know, and, and uh, not in the immediate aftermath, but um, I don't know, humour has always been there. It's always been in my life and the darker, the better. 
Can I also say that uh, a lot of the drama, the conflict and the humour seems to arise out of attending the blue light disco? Oh, well, a lot of drama did <laughs> did come out of attending the blue light disco. God, I, I, I uh, have such vivid memories. If my sister can hear me out there, she'll be like, oh, my God, you know. In fact, I was listening to, the music was a big part to me in this book because of at the time Kilmore was in Australia, you know, Melbourne rock was really great, you know, and we used to have some great songs coming out and there was the Wandong Wallen music, country music festival as well around Kilmore. So music was a huge part and a huge release. But the Blue Light Disco was set up by the police to, I didn't realise this, I just thought it was Blue Light Disco. I didn't realise it was because we were all troublemakers and they wanted to contain us on a Friday night without alcohol. Um, but we used to go off once a month down to the Memorial Hall in Kilmore and my dad would drive us in our um, uh, four-wheel drive, which whistled really, really loudly. So, And he would, even when it stopped, and he would like, you know, and it's like the Fitzgeralds are coming, you know. <laughs> and then we would get out, and I remember I bought a pair of really, really skinny white jeans and it would take, you know, clothing was hard to come by, especially in a big family and with only one shop in town, you know. Going to the Blue Light Disco and what you had to wear, you know, it was always incredibly mortifying for me because I never had anything cool to wear. But it was just where we all managed together. And I, it's so funny, I was reading my diary the other day about the Blue Light Disco and it went something like this. You know, I went to the Blue Light Disco and um, Kathy got on with Huck and, you know, such and such got on with such and such and Thingy and Damien uh, were, you know, I would give more details than this, you know. And then, I, you know, I was obviously not getting anywhere because at the end it's like, I, I think I like Carb, but he doesn't know I exist, you know. So <laughs> I was always just dancing actually at the blue light discos where all the others were out the back you know and you would hear about it afterwards but no I never got any action in terms of boys there at all but it was great to go and just have music and I, one of the things I remember is um is the song um ballroom blitz that yeah. was always the big finale at um and I always thought it was Australian but actually it's about uh, Sweet wrote it after doing a show around the corner from where I am right now in Kilmarnock and there was a as there would be in Kilmarnock there was a brawl so the ballroom blitz uh, and those songs of the blue light disco featured really heavily in the book because I could you know I just never I always had that fear when that song came out okay now it's going to start it's going to start you know the Kilmore boys are going to be against the borders out the back and you know such they'll be fighting over the local girls and and all of that stuff. A lot of drama at the Blue Light Disco. Turning for a moment to your career as a screenwriter, after the success of The Cry and the BBC ABC miniseries that followed, Ash Mountain was actually acquired uh, for a similar TV series before it was even written. Were you kind of more conscious of writing for the screen because of that? Does that create an added level of complexity for you in bringing the story together? So I have always written for the screen. That is my that is my confession. So I started off wanting to get to be a screenwriter, wanting to make a movie or TV shows, and um, and got nowhere. So um, I've always written and thought visually. I don't tend to do a huge amount of description, but what is definitely happening and what happened with Ash Mountain and the one before it, worst case scenario, which was also optioned before I'd finished it. Um, I'm pairing back and pairing back and I almost feel like I'm not putting any words just like you know um description and thoughts uh, uh less uh, I'm doing it less and less 
it's kind of dialogue and action and I'm almost feeling a little bit like I don't know how to write prose anymore. So <laughs> when I put, did Worst Case Scenario and I had a, a bidding war for that, for the film, for the TV rights, and um, everyone said it was like a screenplay in prose. And I feel like that is kind of, I'm not meaning to do it. You know, I want, I want to write a book, but it's just how it's coming out. So the, the one I'm writing at the moment is it's seen, I'm doing it scene by scene in my head. Um, and I don't move on from a scene until I've absolutely finished it and thinking very visually. And all I know is from the last two sort of doing it that way is that I had less editing. I seem to be thinking, just thinking more about about each scene and doing and being a bit more of a perfectionist than I had been before. As a kind of final question to you, uh, there's a lot of talk about genres these days, disaster thrillers, domestic thriller, domestic noir, even Australian noir has come up in the last few years, I think. Do these terms have any meaning for you and, and, and do readers care about these labels anyway? I think it probably, you know, puts when you're looking in uh, Amazon or wherever, you know, if you've liked um, the dry, you know, and other ones come up, you know, that, it helps, I think, that people get recommendations that be, because they've been labelled in a similar way. I, I personally really don't care. I've never kind of written to be domestic noir or to even to be crime. I didn't think I was writing crime at the start. Like I said, I still thought it was comedy. So um, so I don't care what they call it. Um, and I know I'm a bit mixed genre and I, I always enjoy doing that, m being mixed genre and messing it up. But I have really, really liked being on those shelves because, as I said, I really like the other writers and we do events together and we do have readers who uh, recommend our books to each other. So it's helpful in that way, but I wouldn't. Sometimes I guess it puts people has put people off a couple of my books, and they're expecting something that they don't get because um, mine all do tend to be a bit different. So I don't care is my is my answer. I really don't mind what people call my books. Helen, it's been great talking to you, and good luck with the book, and good luck with the screenplay. Thank you so much. Lovely talking to you too, Greg. Thanks, Helen. I've been talking to Helen Fitzgerald about her new book, Ash Mountain. It's published by Affirm Press and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. You've been listening to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, and my name's Greg Dobbs.